Unspoken Issues. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Unspoken Issues podcast. We are coming back at you with a new DC comic to talk about. And this is right on the edge, the precipice of the millennium. September of 1999, Living Assault Weapons is on the stands. Six issue series, like I said, dated September of 1999. Our creative team, Bob Layton, writer slash ink artist, Dick Giordano, penciler, John E. Workman, junior letterer, Tom's Yoko, colorist, digital chameleon, separator, David Michelini. That's a word. That's a name I've heard before. So there's your creative team. What we've got to do here real quick is I've got to introduce the guys that have been on here along with me this whole time. Dean Compton, are you ready? To talk living assault weapons. I'm really ready because I don't I don't miss a chance to talk about the uh, the Charlton guys. I'm a I'm a Charlton Mark. I like the action heroes. I actually just picked up the uh, Charlton Companion Charlton Companion from uh, Tomorrow's. It's a little dense so far. I just started and like wow, it is it is a crazy company from its yeah. inception, which was you know founded in a jail cell between a guy who had been selling uh it, you know uh, copyrighted uh, lyrics. And another guy who used to be a lawyer who had gotten disbarred for uh, embezzlement in the in uh, the city he worked for. And they were like, he's like, hey, well, I can help you, you know, legally get that stuff. And he's like, well, I've already built an illegal empire. John Santelangio had already built a legal, uh, an illegal empire selling these song lyrics. And they met. What? And that's how Charlton Publications was formed. Later on, it would, you know, they do comic books. They did the magazine uh, Hit Parader was uh, theirs, which later on it would be like a, a big magazine in the uh, uh, heavy metal, hard rock, uh, the 80s and early 90s. You know, they made their money on that. They got a printing press and they never stopped it because they would lose money. And they did everything in-house. They printed their own comics. They they had a writer on site. They had artists on site. Now they did do, you know, Steve Ditko and Pat Boyette and a few other people did freelance, you know, from elsewhere. But they had Joe Gill on site. They had all this on site. They had their own distribution company. They did everything themselves. And uh, these guys, the uh, Sarge Steele, Blue Beetle, Captain Adam, Nightshade, Judo Master, The Question, Peacemaker, they're all from the uh, what's called the Action Heroes era of Charlton Comics. Dick Giordano was the editor at Charlton at that time, who is he's doing the penciling here. Uh, and uh, they they did a you know they switched focus for a little bit uh, around 1966 67. They got in the hero game. Uh, these guys are called the Action Heroes. There's a famous house ad where it's like Charlton Action Heroes. You know they aren't half bad. You know they had a really <laughs> funny self-deprecating. You know Dick Giordano did the letters pages really self-deprecating humor. They would, unlike Marvel or DC, they would talk about Marvel or DC, uh, positively or negatively. So, you know, make a long story longer, you know, I mean, I'm just a Charlton Mark. I like these characters. I don't necessarily like this, but it's anytime I can see the Charlton guys and I can see them together, I'm always in. I, I just I just have a place in my heart for it. I'm, I'm honestly not sure why exactly. I think it's just because it's something that I learned as a, uh, when I was first getting into superheroes as a Mark, that then I could lord over other people. Like, we all saw Shadowhawk come out at the same time, but motherfucker, do you know anything about the fighting five? Ah, <laughs> uh, well, Derry, this I believe was one of your suggestions. Am I correct there? You know, it was, and I have regretted it this entire time. You should have said guilty <laughs> as charged. Yeah, I've always meant to read this series. I am not a Charlton fan. I did not know anything about these characters. 
I just knew Watchmen was based on them. So uh, when this series came out back in the day, I was always curious about it. I couldn't pick it up because I had too many books on my pull list in 1999. We were talking recently, and I threw it out there, and you all were nice enough to uh, to pick up you on it. You dodged that bullet for 23 years. <laughs> <laughs> This is definitely one of those series where I finally read it and I thought to myself, well, there was a reason you didn't read it before now. So <laughs> I, I will say, though, I, I have to give this book credit. Uh, Law is written in a in a style that was antiquated even at the time it came out and, and certainly doesn't fit with the other books on the stands today. Uh, and I, I read a lot of modern comics and a lot of them are incredibly decompressed and they take forever to get going. This was almost fun as an exercise to go back and to read a comic written in the style of even probably before the three of us were reading, but coming out in, in 99 just to kind of, uh, you know, continue to tell that type of story. So just from the, the mechanical point of view, I really enjoyed the construction of it. Like, I really enjoyed looking at it and, and seeing this this artifact that was on the stands at the same time as Grant Morrison's Justice League and everything else that closed out the, the 90s. So from that perspective, I, I, I am happy I read it. I probably enjoyed it more now than I would have then because I definitely know 15-year-old me would not have appreciated uh, the, the, the semi-archaic styles. So. Right. Well, we're going to run down 15-year-old, you have appreciated how easy Star and Steel bagged that lady? Star Steel was the breakout character for for me. In fact, I think Watchmen would have been better if they had had Star Steel in it. I want to I want to say that at the top. That's an incredibly hot take because I don't know how Watchmen could be better. <laughs> Bowling, there was a guy with a metal hand. If Dave Gibbons had drew into the background a guy with a metal hand saying, "Is that a squid in New York?" That book, uh, Alan Moore would leave his name on it. That that's how good things would have changed. He would have he would have given his keynote at the Anarchist Magician Foundation for the year 2022, and he would have said, "This addition to my comic is so good, I'm keeping my name on it." I watched oh, the movie. Then he would he would have like held his hand up and like chopped it off and been like, "And now oh. I'm Sarge Steel." But it was all a magic trick. He never chopped his hand off at all. He got him. It's both a magic trick and there's a snake where his left hand used to be, both at the same time. This is frightening. (laughs) Oh, wow. We worked G.I. Joe into that somehow. All right. You know, I mean, I've got a scrap iron shirt. Transformers is coming up soon. Don't worry, folks. I'm wearing a Transformers shirt right now. Oh, look at it right there. So we're going to break down these characters here uh, because we got quite a few that we are going to be talking about that are in this story. Uh, Dean's going to help me out here, but uh, we're going to start out with Sarge Steel. Sergeant Steel, uh, created by Joe Gill, Dick Giordano, first appeared in Sarge Steel, number one, from December of 1964. Now, he's currently known as Director Steel. In this story, he's got a pretty high appointment within the U.S. government. Dean, why don't you lay it on us here? Give us your best description of Sarge Steel. You know, honestly, I... Uh... I like Sarge Steele a lot, but the best way to say Sarge Steele is that he's Nick Fury with more, like, private eye influence. Like, he's got a lot more of that, you know, trench coat cigar. I mean, I know Nick Fury has a cigar, but he's like, I can't believe that there's been another murder. You know, he's kind of more, a little, working class is wrong to get Nick Fury's like this, but he's just a little more in that direction. You know, like, uh, it's hard to see Sarge Steele bagging uh, the Valentina Contessa 
without her throwing herself at him, which right. happened to all Sarge. But uh, basically, yeah, Sarge Steele, you know, fought in World War II. He, like, uh, I believe it originally lost his hand, had a metal hand, and then became a spy guy, much like uh, Nick Fury. For a long time, he was in charge of uh, the CBI, the Central Bureau of Intelligence, I believe. And then I think at this point, he's in charge of... Uh, Oh, it's like the med. I can't remember, but it's the meta humans now. They've moved on. It's not Dio, but it's kind of like um, uh, you know, it's like the uh Bureau of Metahuman Affairs. I think is what it is, maybe. But uh, but yeah, he basically fills a very Nick Fury type role. Very active. He's he was a very active player in Suicide Squad, Checkmate. You would usually see him in that type of in that type of thing, doing that type of role, being like these heroes. I don't trust them, but what God I depend on them. So, you know, so uh, basically Sarge Steele, uh, gumshoe spy. Okay. All right. Next up, we got the question. Vic Sage, uh, created by Steve Ditko, first appeared. Blue Beetle, volume five, number one from June of 1967. Vic is a news reporter. Now, he has this thing, according to what I was reading here, this thing called the pseudoderm. Is that still a thing? Is that what's going on here where he puts this artificial skin over his face, disguises himself, basically removes his facial features, and he's fine? He still dresses for success, and I respect that. That's right. He looks He's wearing a tie and a hat. He's Listen, if he had to go to a wedding or a fancy dinner, even if he didn't have a face, he would fit in. <laughs> now he fights crime as a vigilante. You know he's this news reporter. Uh, by day he's a vigilante. By night, so you know the question was created by Steve Ditko, more or less, is almost a personification of his objectivist ideas. Uh, a very controversial thing is to question. Let somebody die. I think possibly in his first appearance, it's his, you know he lets him like drown in the sewer, and he's like, "Why the fuck would I try and save you? I might die. You asked for this." And that was very Ooh. controversial at that time that a hero would do that. You know, he teamed up with Blue Beetle a lot. Again, almost like if Batman were Clark Kent instead of Bruce Wayne, he does the reporting, and then he would use his leads as a reporter to go hit somebody in the head because that's how you solve problems. Later on, after the uh, Charlton Heroes are bought by DC, and of course Rorschach is his analog in Watchmen, Diddy O'Neill and Dennis Callen reimagine the character, and he becomes like kind of a... Uh, a Zen guy, he learns how to like ninja kick and he winds up on like, he gets his own title, I think in 88 and between like 88 and 95, like there are a few guys who are on the periphery of the DC universe. Uh, the most noteworthy being like green arrow in the question and their stuff's a lot more real. And it seems like the only guy from the DC universe they ever really talked to is like Batman. Uh, there's actually a really good poster of the three of them. And they crossed over to like each of uh, each other's annual several times. Eventually, the question and Green Arrow both kind of wind up more central figures in the DC universe. Later on, the question will like uh, die during the 52 saga and be replaced by Rene Montoya. But the whole thing is he does, you know, later on, he's a much more like liberal, open minded, you know, guy who's much more, you know, much more even keeled when he's not in the face of abject injustice. The faceless thing is really great because. It's the idea that somehow he will be perfectly imbalanced and you can never really tell which way he's leaning. That's kind of the metaphor there that, you know, he's, a, he's an incredible arbiter of justice. Uh, I mostly just think it's cool. Uh, you know, no face, ninja kicks people. I can't say for sure, but it seems like there's a little spirit influence there. Uh, will oh, I can see that. Spirit? You know, I like the spirit too, don't get me wrong, but this is a neat way to spin it, you know, a, a different way to go with those, like that central look and a similar concept. Okay. All right. Next up, we're going to talk Blue Beetle. 
Now, I've got a, a couple of things here. I want to get, uh, set some groundwork, a little bit of history. So in 64, Charlton Comics began publishing, this is straight from the wiki, a new series of Blue Beetle, which substantially revamped the hero, reinventing him as a university professor and altering the spelling of his name to Dan Garrett. Dan Garrett! Uh, yep. First issue was covered dated of June of 1964, but in 66, Blue Beetle was reinvented again in a set of backup stories published in Captain Adam, Number 83, cover dated November of 66 through 86, plotted and drawn by Steve Ditko. They introduced Ted Cord, a student of Dan Garrett's, who took on the role of Blue Beetle following Garrett's apparent death. The only other thing I want to throw in here at the beginning of the story is that Blue Beetle has carpal tunnel syndrome. <laughs> two jokes. I mean, we get two <laughs> jokes about it, right? <laughs> Limit. And also, like, one of them is made by Plastic Man. What an asshole. You don't even have, like, fucking bone. Like, you know, like, fuck you. Oh, we're going to have that total syndrome. We can't all become a goddamn toaster. You know what I mean? Like, dude, you know, other people have problems with their muscles and bones. Piece of fucking shit. I can tell you used to be a bad guy. Not only did you used to be a bad guy, but then you went and joined the FBI. Now you're a worse guy? Fucking oh, piss of off, you O'Brien. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I love Plastic Man. You got to check it out. Like, Ty Templeton's Plastic Man's amazing. And the old school 40s Jack Cole Plastic Man, mind-blowingly good. At least 25, 35 years ahead of its time. Wow. Oh. All of that's true. I want to interject very quickly. If you are listening to this podcast, you have never read Kyle Baker's Plastic Man. Also great, yeah. Press pause. Go get it. The entire thing is collected by DC. It is one of the best comics ever made. If nothing else, it is hilarious. Blue Beetle is a very interesting character, both like uh, inside and outside of this. Blue Beetle is actually started by uh, Fox Comics, by uh, Victor Fox, who was like, you know, in, a, in an era, in a shady business, in this shady business's shadiest era. He was probably the shadiest of characters. At this time, uh, for anybody who doesn't know, and if, if, I'd be surprised if anybody listening to this doesn't know, but comic books in the late 30s and uh, through the 40s, uh, a lot of them were made by, like, creative houses, and they would be packaged and then sent on. And Fox, you know, did that for a little bit, but then he was like, motherfucker, I should just publish these myself. What am I doing here? And there's a whole bunch of shenanigans in regard to that, but they create Blue Beetle, Dan Garrett, who's a cop. And uh, he takes a super vitamin, and that's how he gets, you know, his, like, like, super strength and super speed. And Blue Beetle was actually, I wouldn't say a major success, but a fairly, like, you know, for what it was at the time, fairly prominent. It got, like, it had a, a, a radio serial. And, you know, think about the guys who had radio serials at the time of superheroes. You're talking Batman and Robin. You're talking Superman, and you're talking Captain Marvel and Captain America, and that's fucking it. You know what I mean? So you, you should, the fifth guy is the Blue Beetle, and that's really good company to be in. Right. Honestly. Right. Now, his serial was, like, fucking shitty. Don't get me wrong. Like, nobody, you know, you, you know nobody's like, oh, man, you might want to get a, get a reel to reel of that. Listen to it the way it was meant to be listened to. Nobody's <laughs> saying that. But, uh, but I think it is important. Well, somewhere along the way, Victor Fox ripped off enough people, and I think went broke after like uh, somewhere in the mid fifties and sold the blue beetle to Charlton. Okay. They republished it, you know, basically because, you know, Charlton never met an opportunity to reprint a comic that it did not take up 
from like it started to it's the last like five years except for some like Ditko stuff and uh 1981 uh and 80 i think it was called charlton bullseye where people work for free they didn't put anything out that was new you know what i mean they just reprint the old army stuff reprint the old uh cowboy shit reprinting you know i mean you know whatever we don't have to pay anything for it huh. so then they uh they got steve Ditko who started working on captain adam and then they uh kind of you know retooled the blue beetle at the same time doing those backups then they let steve ditko go wild and just you know completely reinvent the character get rid of dan garrett and his because at this time he used when they retool him he uses a magic scarab to like get his powers but that gets you know he gets killed ted cord's there the scarab's lost ted cord uh uh, it's like, oh, I'm going to, you know, fucking, you know, do this to, to, you know, to help avenge your death and to make up for it. Ultimately, the Blue Beetle is basically Spider-Man meets Iron Man in a lot of ways. The bug connection, Ted Cord, Blue Beetle anyway, the uh, the bug connection. He's a he's a really smart guy, but he's doing this because his mentor died. There's a lot of like overlaps between those two. And Blue Beetle, honestly, until recently, probably was like the most prominent of any of the Charlton guys. Had a really good series in 86 was in the Justice League for a long time, died during Infinite Crisis, got brought back. The legacy continued with Jaime Reyes, you know. Until, like, Peacemaker really broke out, he was probably the most well-known of the Charlton guys. So I'm a big fan. I think every, I think everybody who read comic books in the 90s, like, you know, it's kind of like the Gin Blossoms. Nobody hates the Blue Beetle, you know? They're, you know, it may not be your favorite band, but nobody hates the Gin Blossoms. And nobody hates Blue Beetle. <laughs> Especially when he gets with Booster Gold, one of the best right. pairings, pairings of all time, honestly. Right. I, I was going to say, if I hadn't read a substantial number of Blue Beetle Booster Gold books... I would hate Blue Beetle because every time I look at him, I just think, you left Spider-Man for this? You abandoned Spider-Man because you hated Stan Lee for this? But then he teams up with Booster Gold and I love everything they do. I really like the 60s stuff that, you know, Steve Ditko did with Blue Beetle, honestly. I mean, you're right. It's I mean, it's unfair to compare it to Spider-Man, honestly. Why did Radiohead ever make as good albums as like Amnesiac, Kid A, and OK Computer? I don't know. You know, sometimes people just, you know, that's the best they were ever going to do. You know, I don't think it's fair. I think you have, if you accept Blue Beetle for what it is, I think you like it a lot. But I do understand a lot of people can't do that. Everybody's not as, you know refined as i am the ability to you know separate no for real i totally i do that with some things too you know like uh so i get it but honestly when i first saw blue beetle didn't know that whole story i saw blue beetle for the first time when i got uh, the dc cosmic cards so i didn't think to compare him to spider-man to okay. me he's just a you know, he's guy in the dc universe you know right the most i knew about blue beetle was stuff that i was reading from probably from dc in the late 80s uh you know i was reading armageddon 2001 um right. some of the stuff that was happening around that time the eclipse uh, crossover maybe so i Superman. don't oh, death of superman for sure i mean yeah, I, I, that's where he gets he, he gets his ass beat right yeah yeah imagine um, that a guy with no superpowers goes against the ultimate crypto <laughs> death somehow yeah. doesn't win the fight yeah but lives at least thank Good goodness Hey, Superman yeah. didn't. So in some, I guess that means Blue Beetle wow. is tougher than Superman, right? <laughs> like Doomsday killed Superman, but he could not kill Ted Cord. Well, let's move to Peacemaker, Mitchell Black. Okay. Oh yeah. Uh, create now. This is the original Peacemaker, I believe, is what we're getting here. I don't think Mitchell did. Mitchell Black have a history in Charlton, or no? This is Black... a brand new like Peacemaker thing. Uh, what's his name? Christopher Smith is the uh, Peacemaker from Charlton, and he's the Peacemaker until. I think Eclipso 15, I think he's in the Shadow Hunters and they all 
uh, they all get like aced by Eclipso. Okay. Yeah, that's right. I got it written down here. Uh, Mitchell Black's first appearance is Living Assault Weapons number one yeah. from September of 99, created by Bob Layton, Dick Giordano. This is a physician who Think lost of the royalties they're getting. Think I, about it. Mitchell Black. Right. Household yeah. name. Mitchell Black. Uh, physician. Mitch. <laughs> good old Mitch. That's good what I call man. him. Mitchell uh, Mitch was a physician who lost his license, uh, gets recruited by the Peacemaker Project. Real interesting kind of dichotomy here where he's like his background is being a doctor and helping people. But he's, uh, you know, part of this project where they are putting him in armor and sending him out to uh, to fight things. Uh, he is the third Peacemaker from what I've read. He's the bones of the DC universe because he's always like, I'm a doctor. He never sees this. <laughs> Damn it, Jim. Damn it, Sarge. You know, he's the latest in the in the Peacemaker line. You know, they've done this Peacemaker project thing now where there's lots of them. Historically, Peacemaker is a guy who, like, loves peace so much he's willing to kill for it. You know, rich guy who, you know, sets up a lot of uh, philanthropic organizations to help orphans and things like that but also it's like hey these nations are going to war or these entities are going to war i better get in my big fancy helicopter and shoot them with sidewinder missiles so uh so i love peacemaker to say the least i don't like this version of peacemaker not because of the character or anything i don't like the way it looks i like the classic look a lot better and i don't like this whole like project peacemaker thing it's pretty it's pretty weird it's also weird that it's like it's so top secret that Sarge Steel didn't know about it, but Sarge Steel like knew about Project Peacemaker from back in the day, from when he was in charge of Task Force X, and that was part of like under his command. But I guess he forgot. Maybe maybe he's got lead poisoning from his metal hand, and it's that affecting his memory. That could be. Then we have Nightshade Eve Eden, uh, created by David Kaler and Steve Steve Ditko. The character first appeared in Captain Adam number eighty two from September of sixty six, originally published by Charlton Comics. Uh, my uh, my power set that I have here listed is magic, enhanced strength, shadow teleportation. Those are the three main things that yeah. uh, really define her. And she's definitely a different character at the beginning of this story versus as we go through it, because something big happens that changes things. But you know, it's funny when she first start when they first introduced her, she didn't have any powers. The uh, the teleportation stuff comes later when she first showed up. She's just like a super ninja spy, and obviously that's you know why Silk Spectre in uh watchman doesn't have any powers even though they're even though they're analogs you know she doesn't have that because it was it didn't come into play until suicide squad i believe you but great character the only lady of the action heroes from the charlton uh, lineup so oh, good okay. for her way to get things done All right uh so next up is judo master ripley a jagger created by joe gill and frank mclaughlin Special War Series number four was the first appearance of this character. Judo Master was fighting behind enemy lines with his pal Tiger. We'll get to that here in a second. But after his journey, after World War II ended, he ended up living in the hidden city of Nanda Parbat, which actually slowed his aging. So when we're introduced to him in this story, you know, he's been a character that's been around since World War II, but he is as young as everybody else here. So, boy, he sure is good at judo and he sure did do it <laughs> against the Japanese. <laughs> Joe Gill, the co-creator, though, might be the most prolific comic book writer of all time. He was really? the writer at Charlton, like I said, they brought everything in house and he wrote it all. War comics, superhero comics, westerns, romances. And he would come in like it was like his nine to five job. Like that's what he did. He wrote comic books all day. And like he wrote probably I, I would I would hazard a guess about 85% of the Charlton output, like ever. You know, again, I haven't gotten to the whole uh 
companion yet. I'm, you know, but I'm sure it will confirm somewhere in that ballpark. But yeah, that's really it with Judo Master. They try and reinvent him a couple times, like you know, in the Justice League Quarterly we also read, and I think later Doomsday rips him in half during the Battle of Metropolis. Ooh. Um, you know, that that seems uh, like something that happened that sounds familiar. Um, so an infinite crisis, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Battle okay. of Metropolis okay. and Infinite Crisis. I think Doomsday rips him in half. And uh, also, I can't help but think, like, when I hear Judo Master, I think about, like, uh, Taz, because he used to cut a Hajime, that Judo hold. The, the Taz mission, as he called it. Right, right. He would choke you out with the Kata Hajime. He learned that from Judo. And I also think about Bad News Brown, another wrestler, but he was legitimately a Judo guy. He won the bronze medal in uh, Olympic, at the Olympics oh. in Judo. So, uh, so yeah, I, every time I think of Judo Master, I'm like, but could he take Bad News Brown? Could he take Taz? But uh, just, you know, very much a character of the, t- of the times that I really hard to work in anywhere else. Also, Nanda Parba and uh, Ramakushita, that's dead man stuff. That comes from the, uh, it's really neat to see that come into play here. But that's the deity that brought Boston Brand back to life as a ghost. And he's been to Nanda Parba like a lot. So way to go. I really like seeing that used here. Not a Charlton thing, but it's cool to see that come into play here. You know, we, we should mention that Judo Master is the only Charlton character who appeared on the Peacemaker TV show. So if you right. found us by accident uh, and you were watching the Peacemaker show on HBO Max, the guy in the green costume who was very good at martial arts, that is this Judo Master that we're going to be talking about tonight. Uh, the show didn't adapt too much because, unfortunately, the character's history hasn't aged all that well. But Not just really. Yeah, yeah, and and part of that is acknowledged here, but just for, for name recognition, like, I, I think most people might actually know who the Judo Master is, as opposed to uh, Nightshade or Captain Adam. Yeah, significantly less bags of Cheetos in these issues for Judo I have a, Master. <laughs> I still haven't seen Peacemaker yet, I really need to oh, see that. Oh, I know goodness, it's good, yeah. it's, just, it's one of those things, guys, as I get older, like, I really have to be in a mood to do something, I and like, I, the mood hasn't struck me. I'm busy reading uh, Flash, number 222. One of the heavy hitters of this series, who gets sidelined pretty quickly, Captain Adam. So, Nathaniel Adam, created by Joe Gill, artist and co-writer Steve Ditko, first appeared Space Adventures number 33 from 1960, March of 1960. Power set-wise, I grabbed a quote from the wiki, which I thought was great. You know, I, I did not even, like, if you go to the list of powers under the DC wiki, I mean, it goes on. You have to scroll and scroll and scroll and just keep reading and keep reading. Here it is. My name is Captain Adam, as an A-bomb, as a nuclear fission. As in the end of the world. Straight from Captain Adam's mouth, apparently. You know, he's a Dr. Manhattan analog, kind of like solar as well. Firestorm to an extent like me. He can affect quantum realities and do stuff. But much like Green Lanterns, he's very unimaginative. Like Green Lanterns have like the most powerful weapon in the universe. Like, ah, I'll make a big boxing glove and hit you with it. You know, I mean, like, which is cool. But yeah, that's the best you can think of. He's the same. He's like, man, I have the power of the sun. I'll shoot a ray at you. You know what I mean? Like, which again, <laughs> fine. It's interesting to note that Captain Adam, like, predates the Marvel Universe. That, like, this, you know, he is actually created before Fantastic Four came out, Spider-Man, etc. 
He is the guy of the action heroes that has the most power. They depower him a little bit later in the Charlton thing. He, like I said, he's Dr. Manhattan analog. He had a, he got his own series pretty quickly. I think it starts in like 88 and runs to like 91. And like, I remember the first time I saw Captain Adam, I was like reading like comics values monthly or wizard. And it was like in the price guide and it was like uh, the cover, you know, they would put covers every so often. And this was the one where Swamp Thing was beating him up. And I knew who Swamp Thing was because I watched the USA show. So that piqued my interest. I was like, who's this Captain Adam guy? I feel like he's a guy who always shows up, and this happens to him here. He always shows up as like, oh, here's a powerful guy who can get beat so the other guys can show up. Right. You know, the other people can do something. I mean, great character was going to be the big bad in Armageddon 2001. Didn't quite work out uh, that way. Uh, they replaced it with Hawk because the secret got out. He seems to always be on the periphery of everything important that happens with DC through the 90s. And then also, he winds up going to the Wildstorm universe for a while and like hanging out there, you know. And eventually he just becomes Monarch at some point, but then I think he face turns back again. I was very excited to see him get his costume at the end of Law, because that's the costume he wears when someone at DC is like, well, we have Captain Adam and we do not know what to do with him, but he's on this Justice League Unlimited show, so we should do something. We're going to shunt him off to Wildstorm. And basically, uh, Jesse, what you mentioned about him ending the world actually happens. Like, I don't remember the exact details, but for some reason, going to the Wildstorm universe makes him unstable. And at the end of the series, everything ends. And that's their oh, way wow. of saying, yeah, it's it's not a great comic. I'm not saying anyone should go read it. But it that's one of the many reasons that now there are the Wildcats and the Authority and Stormwatch are part of the DC proper, whatever the main universe is called. They're no longer off on their own. So, okay. Captain Adam, y'all. Nice. Our villain of this piece is, goes by the name of Avatar. Let's just say they have a vested interest in uh, some of the heroes that we talked about here earlier, at least specifically one. They are powerful enough to where they have control over these things called, I want to butcher this, I'm sure, the Ravenans. The Ravanans, something like that. They're they're demonic minions that the Avatar. I wonder if it's control. pronounced like Ravanos. Like, Ravanos. Ravanus. I don't. I can't say. I don't want to be insulting. This could be a genuine mythological thing from the India Pakistan region or what have you. So I don't want. I don't want to assume that, but that could be possible. I mean, it could very well be. Those are villains of this piece. So for anyone listening who's not aware of this fact, the people involved, uh, specifically the creator Dick Giordano, uh, in this book in Law that came out in 1999, uh, they were involved with the book originally in the 60s. So th this is not an instance of someone looking around and saying, oh, hey, I, I really want to play with the action heroes. I really want to do a story with them. Th this is someone who was involved with their inception and cared about them a great deal saying, I want to take this opportunity uh, to let these characters have one great story. And for whatever reason, it was allowed to happen. So they, this well, is actually... They were trying to do this from the time they got them, because Paul Levitz actually bought them, from what I understand, as like a gift for Dick Giordano. And then it, he kept his kept them away for a while. It's one of the reasons why they weren't in Watchmen, because he was, you know, at some point he was going to get to do something, and he was the editor-in-chief, and it just never happened until 1999. Correct me if I'm wrong. Alan Moore's plan with these heroes was to kill them. And then somebody came in and said, no, wait a second. We just got those guys. You can't do that with them. Is that right? Basically, that's what Nick Giordano said. Okay. All right. Yeah. I, my understanding is that they're DC, right? And this guy from England just fixed Swamp Thing. And these other 
English people are fixing Sandman and Animal Man and the Doom Patrol. So they're basically like, hey, we just bought the action heroes. Do you want to play with them? And Alan Moore was like, oh, yeah, you know what? I I, I think I, I might want to do that. I, I had a couple of ideas for the Archie characters, but you don't own them. You know, give me give me a couple of weeks. And then he comes back with, you know, I, I don't remember what the original title was. It wasn't Watchmen, but Watchmen. And uh, they were like, this is really good, but you're going to make these characters unusable. And we, we just paid for them. Like, could you could you file the serial numbers off? Which is why we have Rorschach, who is a household name, as opposed to the, the question, who is incredibly well known. But I mean, Rorschach is Rorschach or everyone right. knows who Rorschach is. So. Well, let's go ahead. We'll get into the first three issues here real quick. Real quick synopsis. The Justice League has disappeared along with its watchtower headquarters. Culprit? mystical being by the name of Avatar, now has the world's militaries in their sights, using demonic underlings called Ravanons to attack. Shortly after, Captain Adam is soon captured by Avatar, and now the White House is to act fast in order to address the threat by having Director Steele contact the Peacemaker Project. Meanwhile, the Question and Blue Beetle investigate to find where Avatar is calling home, running into a recently returning Judo Master. Commander Steele soon summons the trio to the Peacemaker Project where they meet up with the emotionless, now emotionless, Eve Eden, Nightshade, and Mitchell Black, the soldier of the Peacemaker Project. They enact a plan to infiltrate Avatar's stronghold, and during the mission, Judo Master is captured and Blue Beetle's bug is heavily damaged. Heading back to Project Peacemaker to regroup, the team learns there is a traitor that is feeding Avatar information. By the end of issue three, Judo Master learns the shocking revelation of his enemy's identity. And that is his friend from the past, World War II past, Tiger. Tiger. One of the biggest problems with this series is for a series that was ostensibly designed to get the Charlton guys over for a new generation, it's centered around the Justice League and how everything won't work unless the Justice League shows up. Justice League's on like the first like two pages, you know what I mean? It's also another thing that keeps coming up that bothers me a lot, and it starts with Batman, and then Blue Beetle continues it. There's an earthquake on the moon, and Batman's like, that's impossible! There's no fault lines here! <laughs> like, there's got to be, like, half a dozen guys in the DC universe who can make an earthquake. Mm-hmm. And, like, major disaster immediately comes to mind. And then later, like, Judo Master does stuff, like, pulls some nails out of a fence so they can go through it. And then later we'll like, you know, change his molecular structure so that he can like phase through some uh, restraints. And Blue Beetle's like, that's impossible. You're on a Justice League with Superman, Captain Marvel, Dr. Fate, Captain Adam. I mean, Bloodwind, Maxima, Guy Gardner. What the fuck are you talking about? What the fuck are you talking about? This is impossible. It's just bad writing. It's really just bad right like really really like because they really want to get judo master over like he is you know something very special and i'm not saying that that was the wrong thing to do but they do a shitty job of it because of that the 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 project peacemaker thing again like i said it's weird that director steel wouldn't know about it it's also amazing how he's just talking to bill clinton they just drew bill clinton (laughs) right on yeah that's bill clinton that's bill clinton (laughs) The problem, and I hate doing this about this stuff, but this just it doesn't work. The first three issues don't work. I don't like very much that happens in it. I don't. These are characters that I love. I don't like that. Like 
they take Captain Adam out of it immediately, and then he doesn't right. do anything else the whole series. Like until they, you know, until like they get him out of his prison. What are you giving me here? If this is going to be the Charlton heroes and we're getting them together and you're putting them all on the covers, then they need to all team up at some point. You said there's a team name, the Living Assault Weapons, which is shitty, by the way. I'm so, Joey Cavallari is like the editor on this, and I'm just shocked that he's associated with something this bad. He's such a great talent. You, you know, the, the 2099 line when he was there was so tight, just wild, you know. But, of course, you're dealing with the legend Dick Giordano and Bob Layton, who he's pushy from what I understand. But they never give you that big team-up moment. The most powerful guy just doesn't do anything. It's all centered around these guys doing, uh, you know— doing stuff so they can free the real heroes. It just it just doesn't come together. I don't like all these peacemakers. I don't care for the new peacemaker. I would I wish they had gone with that classic look like I said earlier with the the half helmet and the red and the blue. I don't know. It just doesn't come together for me. Those are most of my notes from the first three issues. I did like the Nanda Parvat stop. I'm I'm a mark for that. It was cool to see those things mentioned. Wow that lady who throws herself at Sarge Steel that um that's just bad. It's, it's like funny in the best way because it's just so stupid, but it's so repulsive. It's just terrible. Like, is Sarge Steel just like one of their fiction suits? Because, like, man, all he does is cool stuff and say cool things, and he makes out with the hot lady 40 years younger than him, and he's been shot a hundred times, and they have sex. Oh, yeah. Oh, I don't know. Yeah. So those are pretty much my notes. An incredibly lackluster start to something that doesn't even get to the level of mediocrity. It's like a collection of Motley Crue B-sides. Why? Why did we need to know Sarge Steele could get laid? Like, this is something that we had to know? I don't like know, a- because they're also obsessed with carpal tunnel syndrome. <laughs> and they kind of insinuate that maybe Blue Beetle got it from jacking off. But like, so maybe they're like, hey, Sarge Steele's better get laid because he can't jack off. You know what I mean? Like, well, you know, I mean, he is work. missing what a hand. Fuck? Yeah, yeah. It's not good. Also, like, don't they basically say Blue Beetle is embezzling from his company? Where, like, it's... you know, he gets a contract and then they're like, hey, questions like, hey, how much of that half billion do you have left? Don't ask. That's not how you run a company. You can't <laughs> just have $500 million and be like, oh, I'll build an airship that's also submersible. You can't do that, Ted Cord. They're going to want the receipts, yeah, sir, on the money that you spent. Point, you have a CFO. <laughs> I watch a lot of episodes of American Greed, buddy. It doesn't usually turn out well. On the other hand, he can go underwater, so I guess they will never catch him. I'm with Dean. Uh, a couple of things that I, I did like. Uh, he mentioned how the Justice League is is upfront. Uh, I think that's what originally attracted me to this in 1999. Like you have the the Morrison Justice League right up front. So if you're in the store and you're flipping through this, you see the Watchtower, you see the New Gods, you see all the hallmarks of that later, more successful run uh, than when Blue Beetle and Captain Adam and the others were on in the 80s during Justice League International. Uh, but <laughs> there's a couple of other cameos that I love. The character of Fate shows up in the first issue. Yeah. Uh, so that's the 90s version of Dr. Fate who had a cool Unk tattoo over his eye. Good old uh, Jared Steven. I mean, yeah, he mainly shows up to rip the what was it? He he did something to Eve that caused yeah, her she to has become a succubus inside her, and I guess there you go. Out. I guess so. What's funny though is this would have been coming out in real time around the same time as the first few issues of uh 
uh, Robinson and Jeff Johns JSA. And in the first few issues there, like fate gets killed by Mordrew. And in these, this guy, this character, and in this issue, he's like, oh man, I better have this wine. I wonder if it goes well with Taco Bell. Was he drunk? Did he let his guard down? And that's why he got aced by Mordrew? He's supposed to be like the protector, the lord of order. He's out here farting out a chalupa while he's hammered, and that's how Mordrew got him. <laughs> but you, you could almost picture... Giordano or Leighton writing the script where it was like, and then Dr. Fate shows up and does this thing to Nightshade so that we can have her have no emotion for the rest of the story. And some for editor some was, reason. Yeah, exactly. But some editor was what probably is, what like, that add? It, it, it adds nothing. It, it adds, it adds it's nothing. Stupid. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but go on. No, you're you're right. I mean, Nightshade is already the, the thinnest character personality-wise, and the only change they make to her character here is to make her emotionless. Like it's the yeah. weirdest thing because you you can't do anything with that narratively. Like she barely interacts with the other characters. And then when she reunites with Captain Adam at the end, it's not like a big tearful reunion it's almost like oh hey do you do you remember we were kind of an item in the 60s i do and i feel like i should acknowledge that like we were an item during the janice directive um, oh okay well okay and also nightshade was very fleshed out in suicide squad you know she was a member for a while they did a four issue arc that was all about her trying to find her brother because she wasn't a criminal she was on the suicide squad that was the deal they she would join the suicide squad and be their teleportation but they had to help her find her brother it turns out her brother has gone you know batshit crazy and has made a total heel turn so it was also weird to see them be like hey you know this character that we predicated upon like you know having a lot of emotions both like internally because of the trauma that would be associated with holding a demon, but also like the shit that happened with her brother and her dad and that kind of thing. Let's get rid of all that. What if she didn't feel anything? What if the only lady who feels anything in this is just feeling Sarge Steele's dick? (laughs) Let me quote from that panel. Sarge Steele and Justine. Things are starting to get kind of hot and heavy between them a little bit. Meow. She has him uh, in a hallway, I assume, or maybe in front of her room. I I don't know. So she's checking out his hand. She's like looking his hand over. Wow, it's an EF7365. I've heard about these, but I've never seen one until now. It's said that they have full tactile capabilities. Well, I I can feel with it if that's what you mean. Really? Tell me how does this feel to you? Now, folks, this is a silhouetted you have you cannot see details. You have no idea where she's it's putting that hand. Code approved. You have no idea where she's putting that hand. It is left up to your imagination. And he says, "Hmm, like something I haven't felt in a very long time." <laughs> you know what's weird though? It's like he punched that demon with his metal hand, and it got slagged up, right? Right. Like it just kind of melted or what the fuck ever. And so like he has to go get the new hand put on, but there was like a piece of it left. Right. And they don't show you how that comes off. And I wonder if the guy from the carnage concert with that big knife was, he was there. Like he can use that knife to cut oh, it off. Was he the one who on. did it? That's the question. Yeah. I don't know. Actually the question is big sage, but I have a different question about that because that's a knife. He would know how to do it. Uh, you got it in there, Dean. <laughs> you got it in there. Much like Sarge Steele did. He got it in there too. (laughs) 
you guys have a lot of respect for the Charlton heroes. Do, do I know much about them going into this? I don't. You know, see your guys' expectation of what's supposed to happen in this book with these characters finally reuniting. I'm like, oh, hey, look, it's the question. Oh, look, it's Blue Beetle. I would like to say that out of the three of us, Dean is the Charlton fan. Okay, I, all right. I, I am more, I am more cautiously curious about these, uh, for lack of a better term, off-brand uh, characters. But <laughs> I, I have nostalgia for a lot of truly, objectively terrible things. The Charlton heroes are not one. Not one of them? Okay. Uh, no. I, I I, again, I don't think you would call the stuff that came out in the 60s terrible. I think it's good, especially for the time. You're talking about Dick Giordano as editor in his prime. Steve Ditko's doing a bunch of this stuff. It's probably Joe Gill's best work. Pat Boyette, you know, great work on The Peacemaker. And then, you know, we'll talk about Thunderbolt later, but Pat Morisi's Thunderbolt's really cool. Costume like the old school daredevil and he had the foresight to own the character so you know i mean so i mean i don't think that stuff is bad i do think that living assault weapons is objectively bad and i think some bad things have been done with them since you know but but i think the original stuff is actually almost inarguably like the the creative apex of charlton that that having been said that would make it like the 12th highest mountain in the united states but a mountain nonetheless I haven't read the 60s stuff. So you are absolutely 100% correct. I, I am not uh, forming an opinion on that. I, I also agree that I like the fact that someone is trying to do something with these characters. Because when we did our Ultraverse episode and even our, our Valiant episode, I, I had said it both times. I almost wished DC would have bought those companies because it would have been really nice to see some of those characters be integrated into the larger DC canon. One of the things DC does really well is it kind of, it shepherds these other continuities into themselves. I am currently getting a Wildcats book uh, because of that. And I certainly wouldn't if, if Marvel had bought Wildstorm. So no, I'm, 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 I'm agreeing with you. I don't have that, that gut level reaction. Like even Watchmen, I love Watchmen, the comic, but the individual characters are written almost to be like sad pastiches of of these guys. So uh, one thing I, I will say that we didn't mention before, I just want to throw out there, you know, you, you mentioned that the question, a very violent vigilante, but based on an even more violent vigilante, like one of the things that Ditko did after he left Marvel was he created the character of Mr. A, who Mr. is, a. yeah, who who is to your point, 100%, you know, what if objectivism was a person uh, and, and you know, wore a mask and decided to punish people. So the question is a really interesting take on that, because unlike the others who are, you know, demonstrably superheroes, the 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 question is pretty hardcore. You know, he doesn't have a lot to do uh, in the law book, but, uh, you know, a, a true Steve Ditko-esque question book wouldn't be all that different from from Rorschach murdering the pedophile. So that's that's always been something that interests me. And I think for a lot of people these days, like my, uh, my, my little sister, who is like nine years younger than me, she likes the question because she saw him in Justice League Unlimited. And I think for a lot of people, that's the question, you know, that's how the question is, which is honestly a great, great take on the question that probably amalgamates the Ditko objectivism with the Zen liberalism of the Diddy O'Neill stuff in a way that I didn't think was possible until like the magic guy, you know, the late Dwayne McDuffie himself, like somehow made that work, you know, I mean, to where like you kind of feel like like, like he's got that crazy objectivist, weird right wing conspiracy thing, but he also has like the heart of uh, 
of, of the Denny O'Neill character who was very much into like helping people and learning more about himself. That's the question, you know, you're right. Mr. A is a much more hardcore question. Rorschach, arguably more hardcore than both of them. <laughs> I, I love JLU. I'm with you a hundred percent. Jeffrey Combs doing the voice acting. But the, the thing I love most about that show is they are sitting around and they're like, Hey, we need the question to talk to someone. Who should we bring on? Oh, I know the Huntress. Has he ever interacted with the Huntress before? No, not that we know of. Why? Well, we're gonna we're gonna have them date. Is that weird? No, go with it. Let's see what happens. And an entire generation thinks that you know the Huntress and the Question are are a great couple. Which, again, if you're like super geeks like us, you you think that's a little weird. But the show made it work. And honestly, that's that's headcanon for me now. Oh, without huh. without a doubt. No, I yeah. mean, like the question and the hunters are just together. You know, I mean, like and it, and also like another another uh, ship that that cartoon sailed that I never thought about, but really worked is the Batman Wonder Woman pairing. Yeah. I'm like, you know what? Yeah, they probably she probably would really like Batman. You know, like like you know she admires that kind of thing, and of course he wants a woman to beat him up. So here you go. Credit where credit is due. I will never pass up an opportunity to mention him. Uh, Joe Kelly in the Obsidian Age. That's the first time that was mentioned, and that predates JLU. I'm just putting it out there. Jesse, you can edit that out if you want. <laughs> I, I you said that like you said a hot take. Like you, yeah, like, I'm like, what, what, what's like the controversy like, here? Because <laughs> you got, like your PIN number. Every single time I mention uh, uh, Joe Kelly or credit something to the Obsidian Age, a story where I feel like only I have read, I get blank stares. So I, I didn't want to kill them. <laughs> <laughs> I have I have heard of it, but I haven't read it. it I is may my, have read it and forgotten about it. That's not impossible. It is my favorite Justice League story of all time. I actually like it more than Rock of Ages or uh, the Fifth Dimensional War or any of that stuff. I couldn't tell you why, but every time I read it, I think every DC comic should be like this. I wish that uh, I knew what you thought about it. <laughs> we didn't get the, the greatest comic ever yet. So just, uh... <laughs> I, I really feel like you're kind of Barry Windsor Smithed in here. You're kind of lukewarm about <laughs> it. Lukewarm. <laughs> oh, man. I really hope that people get these inside jokes. And unfortunately, if you don't, we don't care. All right. It all started with the guy from Madison Square Garden <laughs> with the knife. <laughs> If we ever have a Patreon and someone becomes a patron, Dean will call you and just scream at you through the phone. I, yeah. What do you want me to scream about? Baseball or yeah. comic books? This is not cameo, but it'll be something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Derry, I want to ask you, what do you think of our villain here, uh, Avatar? I, I actually really enjoyed the villain for a couple of reasons. One, I love the premise of... I have failed my sidekick, and now they're back for revenge. I, I mentioned this to you guys before we started recording. One of my favorite superhero movies of all time is The Incredibles, uh, which has a very similar premise. And I love this idea of you know a kid's sidekick, someone who looked up to you, someone who you were supposed to mold as a hero and as a mentor. It doesn't work, and they come back later, and they come back, you know, far more dangerous than you expected. But also, you know, the, this this villain, this antagonist for law, you know, passes a very simple test. You, you can kind of see where they're coming from, like not with the death and destruction and everything else, but what does Avatar really want? Well, they they want to end war because when they were a kid, war ruined their life. It took everything from them, and it continued to be a presence as they entered adulthood. Like on paper, that's it's not a bad thing. Like I want to end war. I want to end violence. Unfortunately, 
you know, they want to do that by unleashing demons upon the world and killing soldiers. So, you know, not not a great way of, of going about it. But, you know, it's very similar to like Thanos in the MCU where it's like, no, you don't want to kill every other person, but you 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 understand the intent, if, if not the methodology, at least. So I actually really... Why did he just triple everything? Yeah, again, I'm, I'm not saying it was the <laughs> right thing. That's my question for him. I'm like, yeah. I get it more in the Marvel Universe where he like worships death. Yeah. You know, but like here it's like, ah, I got to kill half the people because there's not enough. I'm like, well, you're God. Make, just make more. It's it's nonsense. But I, what, what I'm saying is you can, you can at least understand the, the idea, right? Like this person yeah. thinks they're the hero because regardless of, of the nonsense way they want to go about it, they want to save everyone. They're not waking up in the morning and saying, I want to murder everyone because I'm evil. They're, they're saying it because from their perspective, they're the hero. And it's very similar here. You know, Avatar may have a legion of demons, but they're thinking to themselves, well, if I accomplish this, there will be no more war. The world will be at peace. And, you know, very similar to Batman, Tiger is telling himself, no one will have to go through what I went through as a child. That kind of makes sense. And and it's funny, too, because, you know, one of the MacGuffins, for lack of a better term in this story, is that there is a space station named Gort. And for those yeah. of you. Yeah, for those of you who don't know, Gort is the alien robot from the classic science fiction movie, The Day the Earth Stood Still. So I don't know why he chose that name, but I thought it was very uh, a very good choice because, yeah, it serves the same purpose as the robot did in the movie, which is a, a deterrent. You know, this there's this big space station that's drawn to be comically large, that's armed to the teeth and, and is about to take over communications for the entire planet. And it's one of these things where it's like, well, yeah, that that's a representation of war. It's basically the, uh, you know, the weaponized satellite from 2001 A Space Odyssey. So, you know, you, you kind of see where Avatar is coming from. He also doesn't hurt children, which, which I like. I liked. I like the I like the ending where he's like, oh no, I wasn't going to hurt any of the kids. In fact, they can go back with you. You know, you 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 deal with this. I'm not again. I'm not putting anyone through what I went through. So I I, I did like that um, for a series full of lackluster stuff that never really gets its footing. The evolution of Tiger into Avatar I thought was very well done. And honestly, it was a, it was an interesting hero. You know, you don't see many uh, South Asian or, or Indian supervillains of a high caliber. So I'm I honestly I, I hope this character comes back one day. Yeah, you know, that was really another thing that I don't mean this in a bad way, but it took away from the book for me because here he is telling you what he's going to do and why he's going to do it. And I'm sitting here, I'm like, all right, where's the lie? And honestly, even when he went and killed soldiers, he told them they could all leave. He didn't have, right. you know, like he, he gave, gave them a the chance, chance to retreat. Right. So like, what's he doing that's terrible? You can argue he's just doing what the goddamn Justice League should be doing. You know, now here's the difference is they believe in a lot of social and political constructs that may or may not be real and or important as far as achieving goals, but we have made them very real and important important as far as our day-to-day -day existence avatar has you know evolved past that like that just doesn't matter we could argue about whether that's important or not or whether this would solve problems or not but i do think his philosophy is correct and i do think he goes about it in a much more moral manner than he, than he gets painted you know than he gets painted for you know by these gays like oh we gotta stop him right. i mean other than well, the justice league why now they didn't know this going into it but as things are revealed you know this this character, Tiger, has been the reason why he's come to such powers. He's drinking this thing called the Soma, I think is what it's called. Yeah. And that apparently, I mean, he is even telling uh, Judo Master this, that this will drive people mad. Now, it's not happening right now. He seems like he's got a pretty good handle on things, but right. he's definitely 
has the potential to become unhinged and he's pretty powerful. So, I mean, we just, but yeah, I agree with you. Like, you know, he's going about this an awful strange way to become, be a villain, <laughs> you know? Well, I mean, well, when it, will it drive him mad? I don't know. People say LSD will drive you mad. I'm thinking like 300 hits of LSD in my life or so. All right. And like, you know what it did? It calmed me down and made me a better person. It really put me in touch with, with things. It put me in touch with things in a way and made me realize a lot of things were connected in ways I hadn't thought of. And I became a much more moral person. I'm not saying it made me perfect or anything, but it was an important part of the development of me, uh, you know, and it caused me to believe a lot of things that I've talked to you all about. I've talked on here about which when we break them down, seem incredibly sane. But when you talk about trying to apply them to society, they'll call you mad. So, like, I mean, are they just calling him, you know, is, is this just like because he's he's gotten past these constructs and he's like the only way to keep everyone safe is to destroy all the weapons like has he you know not a is, is that mad is that mad right. or he has the power to do it so he should you know again i don't know that this i don't know that this wouldn't just cause more problems or like this is actually the answer but i know his reasoning is sound and i know that we've never tried not having big militaries so maybe it should be tried Maybe you can keep the Justice League around as a counterbalance. You know what I mean? Also, that's the other thing about this comic, too. Where's everybody else if this is such a big deal? Where's the Titans? Where's Young Justice? Where's the Outsiders? Where's the Doom Patrol? Where's Where's the Global Guardians and the Hero Hotline? Where are these people? Can, can we all agree that Dick Giordano and Bob Layton hadn't read a comic that featured any of the action heroes in between Crisis on Infinite Earths and now, because everything we're pointing out, it's like, no, I, I have comics where Starge, Steel, and Peacemaker hang out in the 80s. Blue Beetle and Captain Adam were Justice League members when there were dozens of dozens of members. Like, it's it's very obvious that all those stories are just being ignored because they want to follow up on what they were doing in the original continuity. I feel like that's the only way this story works. That's kind of what I felt. I was like, oh, the band's getting back together. But really, it's kind of like, well, do they do they know each other? Do they not know each other? It, it, this is like these guys getting together and they're kind of feeling each other out again and, and getting into a misadventure to try and solidify them as a team at some point. You know, well, I, and that's the thing. And, and that, may be a, that may be a mistake. Because they were never really a team in the old days either. Like Blue Beetle and the Question knew each other, and Blue Beetle and Captain Adam knew each other, and Captain Adam and Nightshade knew each other. But until like the 80s, actually, when a company called AmeriComics had the license and they put them together as the Sentinels of Justice, they were not like all these Charlton guys were on a team. That did not happen. That wasn't a thing. In fact, like exactly. Judo Masters Adventures took place during World War II, while like Peacemaker and Captain Adam and Blue Beetle would have been contemporary, you know, in the 60s. So, so that may be that may be part of the mistake. I don't necessarily want them to be a team, but I do. You want them to all be together, if that makes sense. I do. You know, I and do. you're promising to bring them together, and they do have this. They have this meta connection that you, that we all know about. So you want to see them fight together, even if it doesn't wind up with them becoming, you know. The Justice Battalion who gets fucking aced in uh, Kingdom Come. I was just going to say, was that a Kingdom Come reference? That made, my, <laughs> that made my entire night. For those of you who don't know, Mark Wade and Alex Ross bring the action heroes back in Kingdom Come. And then the same exact thing happens. Captain Adam in this costume from three years earlier gets taken out early in the fight so they don't have to explain why he isn't involved later on and then the rest of them are just they just kind of they just kind of peter out but yeah the justice yeah. battalion thank and then he blows up 
Yeah, yeah. Causing yeah, we'll both say, Because that's usually, listen, listen, Captain Adams, there are only two Captain Adams stories. The one where he gets incapacitated and can't do shit for shit. <laughs> the one, or the where, one he where he destroys everything. <laughs> There's a third one, which happened in Invasion, where he gets to be the soldier guy in charge of superheroes. But that's mm. it. Those are the three Captain Adams stories as far as I know. Nice. Four through six. Bear with me here. This is, I wrote I wrote a lot here for some reason, but here we go. Issue four gives us Judo Master and Tiger's story. Tiger was Judo Master's warden in World War II, but when Japan surrendered, Tiger's immigration to the U.S. continually falls through. The pair travel the world looking for a martial arts haven called Nanda Parabat. Parabat? Pronouncing that incorrectly, I'm sure. However, Tiger grows tired of traveling with Judo Master and bitterly leaves him. Upset with the plight of children affected by the horrors of war, Tiger acquires some objects of immense supernatural power, giving him the ability to control the Ravenans and immortality, becoming Avatar. The only drawback is that it drives the owner mad. Unknown to Avatar, Judo Master is able to free himself. This is back in the present time. Uh, Judo Master is able to... He's able to free himself, and the two fight until Tiger is actually killed. Judo Master rescues Captain Adam, who is in a liquid state. I think he puts him in a cup or something. I don't know. Um, who's in a liquid? <laughs> who's in a liquid state at this point? But then revives Tiger and leaves. Undeterred, Avatar con- contacts his mole at the U.S. government to control a large satellite to unleash unleash an EMP to cripple the military. Aware of this, Blue Beetle, the Question and Peacemaker, head to space to stop it. Landing, the team has to avoid the satellite's defense mechanisms and is successful, but Blue Beetle suffers some serious injuries after being electrocuted, nearly sacrificing himself to stop the weapon. Nightshade, with the help of Martian Manhunter, finds the Watchtower and frees the JLA. Victory well in hand, Judo Master reaches out to Avatar, appealing for him to release the children that were under his protection. Avatar agrees, but swears their war is not over. Concluding the story, Blue Beetle recovers and decides to shelve his passion for crime fighting as he has had a bit of catharsis during his adventure. Mitchell Black looks to leave the Peacemaker Project, but is advised he is not allowed due to a past mistake. Captain Adam is able to reconstitute himself after some wise words from Judo Master. And the last words of Vic's piece before he hits delete... I'll read it straight from the comic. Cap had to face a crisis of confidence in order to discover who he truly was. The Blue Beetle, the Peacemaker, and the Judo Master saw the guilt of their past evolve into the thing that threatened their hopes for a future. And poor Nightshade had to lose her humanity in order to recognize its value. But what about the question? The lesson I learned from the Avatar was that our pasts are always present. I learned that conflicts, no matter how small, can result in enormous tragedy when left unresolved. And most of all, I learned that when all else fails, friendships are the glue that holds our tenuous individual realities in place. The end. Judo Master looks to find Tiger and bring him to the light at some point while Tiger is out looking for Nanda Parbat, the realm Judo Master was in before recently returning to Earth. So there you go. Hey, don't forget, don't forget, Sarge Steele is on a private jet with his new hot, with his hot girlfriend, who it turns out, she's rich. The the whole thing or question at the end is great because he didn't really do anything. He's got no superpowers. He happens to know the Blue Beetle, so he gets to go into space. You know, it's not like he did any detective work or really figured out what was going on, but he was present and he learned all this stuff. So he immediately starts writing it up. And then, you know, he very dramatically, presumably holds down the delete key for, I I don't know, 20 minutes or so, because no one knows how uh, keyboards work in 1999. Um, (laughs) 
Which actually is a trope I like because, and I know this is random, but they do something similar in the 2003 Daredevil movie where they have Ben Urich dramatically hold down the delete key to remove his storyline where he's going to unveil Daredevil's secret identity. I don't know who stole from who, but uh, that's what that made me think of. <laughs> yeah, save it and delete the file, bro. I, yeah, uh, again, who knows? Who 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 knows? They keep going back to the Peacemaker Institute, the, the PAX Institute or whatever it's called, and, and the governors who are both like random animatronic things that represent non-corporeal concepts, but also terrible stereotypes of what you would think delegates from different first world countries are. And they're constantly like talking about how, no, 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 we need this thing and we need operatives and we need everything else. And to go back to Dean's point, it's kind of like, yeah, Avatar's making a lot more sense here. Remind me again why we need guns, because I, I don't I don't I don't know about this. Why? Like why? you have the Peacemaker institution and it's it's apparently more well funded than the UN because they can effortlessly loss launch space stations and everything else, but they also don't think anything of like blackmailing and press ganging a random doctor into becoming G.I. Joe. So it the the whole thing is very weird and I, I don't know that it was intentional to make the villain's point of view a little bit more palpable, but that's certainly uh, what I get towards the end. And the other thing that I really like is Judo Master, who is the character I knew the least about coming into this because he doesn't even have an analog in Watchmen. As far as I know, he's just a a white person who's incredibly good at the martial art of of Judo. He kind of keeps pursuing this idea of, well, I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to redeem you. Like you did this you did this thing and it was really, really bad, but it's kind of my fault. I need, I need to bring you back. Like, it's not enough to defeat you. It's not enough to lock you up. I have to make up for this. And I, I do like that. I like the idea that judo master hasn't given up on his ward. Even even if these characters are, are not necessarily going to be uh, household names. I, I really did appreciate that aspect of the character. Cause it seemed very consistent. Uh, and then finally poor nightshade, like, oh my goodness, you you know, you're you're the one who actually finds the Justice League. You're the only one with superpowers that seem to matter. You know, you have the ability to jump into the netherworld where the ravenous are coming from. You you have a lot you of agency. A shadow tornado. Do you do things? I, I don't even know how to describe like she seems to have different powers based on whatever the story calls for. But it's like it doesn't go anywhere. You, you know, I, I, I kind of wanted to see the character have a real moment at the end where she's like, oh, OK, great. This is what I'm going to be like going forward. But it's, you know, she's still emotionless and she's standing there with her random uncle. And it's kind of like, oh, no one's going to pick up on this. There's a there's a later series that features these characters as part of the multiversity. It's a single issue called Pax Americana. Nightshade, uh, Eve Eden gets much more agency there, but still, you know, the 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 least developed out of the six, and I, and I feel like that's just unfortunately how the game is going to be played. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's a six issue miniseries, and you're told a story, and everything's wrapped up, but unfortunately, it's it's very forgettable. It's not a great way to close out the '90s. I, I was kind of like on your side there, Derry, where you're like, I want to see Avatar come back. As we close this out, I think the most promise for me is like, okay, Avatar's still out there. At some point, he's going to show back up, and we'll get another story where these guys have to maybe come back together. Does that happen? Are you guys aware of anything like that, or does Avatar just I don't think we right off? I think this is something that DC hopes that nobody ever talks about again because it it (laughs) got you know it, it it got over. You know, like you know, like a dead fish in a locker. You know what I mean? Like, no, it is not good. The other thing to remember is these characters are not going to have a great time of it in the coming decade. Uh, you know, D- Dean mentioned before the Judo Master gets unceremoniously torn in half. 
Yeah. Ted Cord is is murdered. Like uh, a big part of that Infinite Crisis era is the idea that there's really just no place for a, a wisecracking bug themed supervillain uh, superhero. And uh, you know, if you say that out loud, you might have a better understanding of why. DC is constantly in crisis mode. Um, Especially when you consider, and no offense, because I love Jaime Reyes, like, we don't have room for a wisecracking bug-themed superhero. Let's replace him with another wisecracking bug-themed superhero. But he'll be younger and Latino, which I honestly think is good. I'm not complaining that they made him younger and and Latino, that's that's you know really good. I don't mind that, but like your argument, it's it's weird that that's your argument. We can't have Ted Cord because he's like X. We'll have Jaime Reyes because he's like X. Yeah, Ted Ted Cord has a rough go of it. He shows up in the the book, The Birds of Prey, and there's this running joke about how he has to wear a girdle because he's so yeah, out of cause shape. Because he's, he's fat. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. that starts in Justice League. Oh, that's like, such injustice. Yeah, oh, okay. Justice League. Him and Booster Gold get out of shape at one point. Yeah, he's pretty much outside of his uh, his own title. He's pretty much a joke character until he dies. He's one of those characters, and I guess Speedball had a similar thing where nobody realized how much they liked him until they were gone or transmogrified. Yeah, no that that that's an excellent point. You know, you you murder these seemingly innocent characters, and then everyone you know suddenly gets in arms. Uh, over it and it's the first time they thought about the character for a while but well i think people had thought about him i think that's i think the thing is is like i think a lot of times and this is one of the reasons i have a hard time reading a lot of uh modern mainstream superhero comics and it started around then around infinite crisis is they're supposed to be fun and the blue and ted cord's a fun guy and speedball's a fun guy everybody's not supposed to be spawn and goddamn punisher you know and like (laughs) you know dark wolverine you know when he's at his darker moments there's supposed to be some fun characters daredevil doesn't have to be born again daredevil he can be the carl kessel daredevil which was like swashbuckling and fun like it, it could be different and i feel like around the time that they killed ted cord dc especially was just trying to leech all of the fun out it's if there's no fun what's the point i already live in this goddamn forsaken real world i don't need something to not be fun right i want to escape Right. Which, again, doesn't mean there's not room for stuff that's a little more challenging or dark. It's just uh, I just hopped onto the wiki to kind of see where our creators go after this. Well, I can tell you the big thing that happens on both Bob Layton and Dick Giordano's wiki, and that is in December of 2000, Layton launched Future Comics. Right. So are they, at that time, are they cutting ties with DC and not doing anything. Well, with Dick them, Giordano or? had been the editor of DC for a while. He had been freelancing for a while. And Bob Layton also had been freelancing. And Dick Giordano, like he passes away within a decade. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say around 10 years from now. So, yeah. you know, the, the other thing that uh, we didn't mention, but I, I feel like I should, even if I don't want to, the, the actual meat of this story hinges on a uh, character betraying the, the team. But it's, you know, the the villain is an Asian man who is dedicated to Indian philosophy. And the the traitor in the Peacemaker Institute who betrays the law is the one sole Indian character who's in the. It's very weird. It's it's like she's introduced early on. She has a, you know, a very obvious name and appearance and everything else. And then halfway through, you, you think the traitor might be. I, I don't know Justine or whomever Sarge is is hooking up with, but it's it's not. You're clo- you're you're shown very clearly to be this woman, and and again she's got a very 
relatable position of like, well, I need to save my son and this God from my home said he, right. he could do it. So it's just one of these things of like, it reads of Orientalism, like I've talked yeah, about before. Yeah, like yeah, Edward Said yeah. wrote about here, we're gonna, you know, this is we're gonna put these things into a neat box, make them yeah. palatable for our primarily yeah. white yeah. audience, and then and then you know we're 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 going to make that they're the villains, they're the noble yeah. savage, it's yes. the way it always Thank is, etc. And I think that's what happened here. And we, we're going to, and sadly, you know, this was not a well-known concept. I think it's a concept at the time. I think it's much more known. Like when they made the Iron Fist Netflix show, they're like, you know, this is problematic for a few different reasons. I think it can be sorted out, but like it does have its issues on the surface. But I think this wasn't something that was considered at the time. I mean, Judo Master is really just Iron Fist number zero, you know, yeah. in a lot of ways. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, and, and there's stuff before this that's even like, like the shadow is like this to a certain extent the phantom even you know you know i mean yeah. but yeah i think that's the i think i agree with you i felt like it was off-putting and reeked of orientalism you know it's it's funny you mentioned that because i i wanted to bring this up and you had mentioned uh, thunderbolt before you know J judo master is unfortunately part of a, of a longer legacy and uh you know the analog in in watchmen isn't judo master it's 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 Peter Cannon Thunderbolt, uh, who DC does not own the rights to and didn't appear in this book and 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 all this other stuff, though he did appear in, in an issue we'll talk about a little later. But my understanding is that Peter Cannon was based on an even earlier character, which was the Golden Age Daredevil. Golden Age Daredevil. Yeah. Not necessarily the character himself. I don't think their origins are similar, but the outfit for sure. And Pat Morrissey actually tried to buy the rights to the Golden Age Daredevil from a Charles Biro, who's a fascinating guy if you ever get to read about him. Actually was one of the people who was like censured for being a communist and stuff, you know. Really, one of the reasons that like, you know, Wortham and those guys really went after comic books at the mm. time, published the uh, the crime comics that were just sorted. They're delicious, to be honest. But like, yeah, he wanted to buy that. They balked. And so he just kind of uh, made the outfit different. I don't know Dare the Golden Age Daredevil's origin, though. But uh, so it could be similar, but I don't think so. I think he was just like a guy who was a big gymnast. You probably okay. see him in the Savage Dragon, though, because like the, he brought in a bunch of like public domain characters. That one, Captain Tootsie, I remember, which is really funny. The Tootsie Roll Shazam esque guy. <laughs> yeah, I, I I wasn't sure if 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 he had a similar origin because uh, I I know that Marvel's Iron Fist is vaguely based on a Golden Age character named Amazing Man, who also I believe has yeah. a similar and Amazing like, Man's in the Protectors and stuff. Yes, yeah. exactly. Our character. Yeah. Yeah, so it's 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 all connected. It all goes back to this weird idea of like if you go far enough east, you you could out out magic the people who have lived there for for millennia. Doctor Strange, odd. even to be honest. Yeah, no, Doctor Strange. Though I I will say I read a very interesting article. I, I forget where, and I apologize, or else I would credit it. That there is a theory that if you look at the first couple of issues of Doctor Strange. It is obvious that Steve Ditko meant for Stephen Strange to be of Asian descent, uh, based on the That's, way he, you know what that, that that is true when you look yeah. at those early issues. Yeah, and again, I I, I don't I have I've never met Steve Ditko. I'm not speaking as an expert. I'm just saying I, I believe if you look at the first couple of issues. It is predominantly Asian characters uh, in the origin stories. They're drawn the same way as Stephen Strange. So the, I, I don't think Ditko intended for him to necessarily be a white person. I don't know how much of that was added later. But again, that's just me defending Marvel. So Golden Age Daredevil apparently has two origins. One where like his, his parents get killed and he becomes a mute. 
He gets a boomerang-shaped scar. The murderer branded him with a boomerang-shaped scar, and so the traumatic experience left him mute. He trained in the boomerang, not so traumatic that he wouldn't, you know, get really good at it, and then he became Daredevil. His other one is that apparently he was able to speak. His parents were killed while he, they were in Australia. So Bart was raised by a tribe of Aborigines who taught him how to throw the boomerang. Then he came back to America and became Daredevil. You know, you pick your poison because they're both pretty fucking awful. Um, <laughs> isn't uh, isn't although, that... Listen, if I'm going to pick one, it's the Aborigines thing. Yeah, because, like, you. I just want to... I, I can just see this guy, like, throwing a boomerang at a kangaroo. I like the imagery. Love it. Oh, man. All right. So, no, notes? they don't have the same origin. <laughs> <laughs> Any other notes here on our uh, six issues of Law, Living Assault Weapons? Do we ever know why they're called that? Characters they start saying it. <laughs> they start saying it, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> a couple of things that I have. Number one, wow. Why isn't this a five-issue series? Because goddamn, nothing. Everything, all the crises are like solved in issue five. There's no punching or fighting in issue six. It's just a, it's just a judo master talking nicely to Captain Adam while the question hangs out. You, you needed that scene where Justine says... Well, I'm also wealthy. I'm not only gorgeous and interested mm -hmm. in random old men who are probably real pretty man, mean man. <laughs> A girl can't be fucking rich, dude. What? Welcome to the nineties. How many times is that said in here? Like, <laughs> you know, it's nineteen fucking ninety nine, dude. You've had nine years to get You've used had nine to the nineties. <laughs> I was thinking the same thing. Half of this, half of this fucking comic takes place in the two thousands. <laughs> Uh, when when you said the thing about the fiction suit, that's all I could think of because I don't know anything about Bob Layton or Dick Giordano. But Star Steel is just—he's just like it's just a—it's just a Mary Sue. It, it's just, he shows up. He's tougher than everyone. You know, he's fought real, but he he fought super villains and Nazis and and all this other nonsense. And and then the most gorgeous woman in the world is throwing himself. You know, it's just like he's the one who gets—I I won't even say an arc like halfway through he's mind controlled just to give him something to do for the issue but even yeah, that also gets... so he can snap at her yeah right exactly so they can exactly. have what's supposed to pass is you know what's supposed to convince us is some kind of relationship conflict yeah 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 don't it's, forget it's the part rough. where she says his dick works by the way <laughs> oh man they say it Gosh, nicer because this, hey this is comics code approved it is this but is this is an absolutely this is these six issues are so tame, even by the standards of of 1999, where like you, you know things things were getting a, a, a bit rowdier. But uh, oh, yeah. the, these are these are tame comics. Yeah, these these are very much comics code approved. Everything is uh, you know innuendo at best. Again, that that line about Plastic Man where he's making fun of Blue Beetle, I thought that was a dirty joke. And then they continue to talk about carpal tunnel syndrome. And it's like, oh no, you're really just like making fun of him for being a nerd like that is really what the punchline is here and it was just so awkward it was just like did no one read this thing before it went to the printer i think the idea was maybe that they're like okay we're gonna write this for like 12 13 14 year olds which they're like into those kind of jokes to an extent but the thing about 12 13 14 year old young men is they like to pretend they're more sophisticated than they are 
you either have to like make a much more clever joke than they did, or just straight out be like, "Yeah, Blue Beetle jacks off," you know, because <laughs> you know hit them over the head with it because they also like that. But like when they're not, because that seems mature somehow. You know what I mean? Like, oh yeah, that would be on Cinemax, you know, or some bullshit. But like, you can't do this stuff where it's you know it's just this shitty innuendo. Although it it is riotous in a bat in the, the the most awful way. The other thing I wanted to point out was, and I sent you guys a picture of this: the robots that are guarding the satellite are just the robots from Chopping Mall. I sent a picture of, like, the robot from Chopping Mall right next to them. They're the same. They're on these tracks. They're like, oh, my God. It's pretty much just, you know, straight up, which reminds me of the story. One time uh, when I first met uh, my girlfriend, Emily, she uh, she and I were talking about, you know, slasher movies we had seen. And I was, like, telling her about Chopping Mall. And she's like, no, I've seen that movie. I think you're talking about Killbots. And I was like, no, I'm talking about Chopping Mall. She's like, well, I've seen a movie that's a lot like that. So I looked it up. Chopping Mall was originally called Killbots. They released it. It didn't do very well. They were like, oh, let's re-release it, but let's make, let's jazz it up. A janitor told them to call it Chopping Mall, and they put it out. It was a big hit. Make that oh, guy shit. the CEO, motherfucker. Like, he, <laughs> he's driving the sack. But anyhow, when I saw them, that's immediately what I thought. I was like, those are just the robots from Chopping Mall. That's hilarious. Yep, there they are. Looking at it right now. The tracks are the same. The build's the same. They both shoot lasers. Yep. You know, like, it's just, that's 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 all. Also, uh, the only thing I really appreciate, they tried to do this here. They gave Blue Beetle a bit of a little backstory. But again, it's like you said, they had never read any comic book that had happened between, like, the 60s and now. Because he'd already dealt with all that shit. Yeah. All that stuff had already been dealt with, you know, and so they just so it was good that they tried. And I'm all I'm a fan of the Dan Garrett Scarab Blue Beetle. And I like that, like, it sometimes gets brought back to that, that Scarab is now like, a, you know, it's a MacGuffin in the DC universe that like, you know, it you know, I think it gets connected to Jaime Reyes at some point. And, um, you know, I think there was also like a loosely related uh, story. uh a Vertigo series called Scarab that was like loosely related to it. Could could be wrong about that. I, I've heard that. Um, uh, I never read it, so take that for what it's worth, which is like minus thirty bucks. So I did like that that they tried to get that going because I'm a mark for that stuff. But I don't think it worked. But I'm glad they tried. I think the Peacemaker thing is a bad story, especially considering that they keep being like he did it wrong as a doctor, and then you look at it and you're supposed to feel bad for him. But yeah. He operated on a kid without their parents' permission, and the kid died. Yeah. Why, why am I supposed to feel bad for him? It's like, they won't let him be a doctor anymore. Sounds like they fucking shouldn't. <laughs> like, apparently the kid was going to die anyway, but, like, you did this, and then he died. So it looks like, you know, like, that's even if it had nothing to do with what you did, that's a bad look. That's why doctors have to get consent. Why am I supposed to feel sorry for this guy whose actions arguably wound up killing a kid who he you know he did without consent? Also, how does that happen? Did he kidnap this kid to do this fucking surgery? Like, right. oh, hold on, I want to talk to your son for seven hours. What in three <laughs> days if it goes bad? What do? How does that even work? I, I thought that not. was a weird weird take. One of the you know I did like that they showed the question with bruises because a lot of yeah, times you don't see up. those normal guys get beaten up and he's like, gosh. And I got that. You had that mask on a long time, so probably some of it was just stuck to his face. But some of it was, you know, he had a black 
guy. He got the shit kicked out of him. So I do mm-hmm. like when uh, the so-called human heroes show those kind of weaknesses. Because let's be honest, everybody who is a so-called non-powered superhero in these universes would be a super would have superpowers in ours, as evidenced by the fact that those guys just go into space. You can't just go into space like astronauts train for like nine hundred hours and go in that that spinny thing so they can start to handle the g-force and stuff. The question: Where's his hat and tie? You know what I mean? That's it. Like, so I just want to say this is more proof that you say something like Batman or Green Arrow, they don't have, or not, we don't have superpowers. They absolutely do. You could not do that in the real world. Blue Beetle hangs things up. How long does he hang things up for here? I mean, he says 20 minutes because, yeah, yeah, like three days. uh, They have that JLA spinoff, and he's informally known as the Justice League pretty quickly. And this was 2000, and like Infinite Crisis is 2005, and that's he. When he gets popped, he's been active uh, for a bit. So I don't that's think probably he... one of the biggest things that I took out of this. At the end of this, Blue Beetle's like, um, oh, I'm, I'm worked through my shit now. I, I, I need to, you know, I'm just going to hang things up for a little bit. And I'm like, wow, that's pretty a big deal. That was your own dumb fault because nothing in this comic book was a big deal. Yeah. To the point where the Justice League shows up and saves the day in a comic book that is not theirs in the penultimate issue, <laughs> not even the ultimate issue. Yeah, right, right. Our our last issue, yeah, our last issue is pretty much an epilogue. It's a big shit bottle full of nothing. Nothing happened. Law. I can't believe that no one screamed that they were in fact the law in six issues. That's all I wanted. You know, someone maybe we Peacemaker to to just channel Judge Dredd to give me some self awareness of of the nonsense going on here. But no, everyone everyone played it straight. Let's get into Justice League Quarterly number 14. Really, really, it's about the cover. Let me know your cover. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, if this thing had come out a few years later, I absolutely would have bought it after just seeing the cover because you cannot go wrong with a Mike Mignola cover. And this thing is gorgeous. I, I mean, this this was right around when he was starting Hellboy. You can tell with the way the shoulders and the blacks are used. Like, he is right... He's about to enter his golden age. I mean, this cover is gorgeous. Yeah, and I mean, he's about to enter his golden age and think about what he's already done, like Cosmic Odyssey and his... uh, The X-Force stuff, and that kind of thing. He's already... Gotham by Gaslight. Gotham by Gaslight, there you go. He's no slouch, but I mean, Hellboy is Hellboy, so... Oh, yeah, for sure, for sure. He's, you know... He's about to have a rocket strapped to him, but he was already on top of a mountain. Yeah, agreed. Agreed completely. Yeah, yeah. So this is Justice League Quarterly number 14. Came out in the spring... Yeah, I got spring of 1994. So we're doing things a little bit backwards here, but that's okay because this story feels definitely kind of standalone. The story that we're getting into, we're just focusing on one story, and that is Havoc Unleashed, written by Paul Kupperberg, Michael Collins on pencils, Eduardo Barreto on ink, uh, on inks, Bob Pinaja, uh, letterer, and Gene D'Angelo, colorist. So again, this takes place before the events of Law. Uh, specifically, what the big difference here is is that Nightshade is actually, you know, prior to being stripped of her emotions. But we do have a couple new characters here. Dean, you know, feel free here. I want to do my best to kind of lay out here Thunderbolt. Uh, who debuted in Peter Cannon Thunderbolt number one from January of 66, part of Charlton's editor's Dick Giordano's action hero superhero line. Uh, I'm going to read this. This was straight from, I think, the inside. This was on the wiki, but this is like the description on the inside of the comic of who, who Thunderbolt is. So Peter Cannon. 
orphan son of an American medical team, was raised in a Himalayan lamasery where his parents had sacrificed their lives combating the dreaded Black Plague. After attaining the highest degree of mental and physical perfection, he was entrusted with the knowledge of the ancient scrolls that bore the secret writings of past generations of wise men. From them, he learned concentration, mind over matter, the art of activating and then harnessing the unused portions of the brain that made seemingly fantastic feats possible. Then he returned to America with his faithful friend, Taboo, which I don't think shows up here, and sought sought (laughs) sought out a new life in a new land that required the emergence of Peter Cannon Thunderbolt. First of all, like we talked about earlier, Pat Morrissey owned, he owned the trademark and copyright to it. It is still owned by the Morrissey estate to this day. Thunderbolt was licensed to DC Comics around this time. It actually had like a 12-issue series. Uh, it was an ongoing, but it only made it 12 issues. Mike Collins was the writer and penciler on that series. And Paul Kupperberg was the editor. So these guys, you know, I uh, it's been a while since I've read that series. I do like it. We should cover it sometime. It's very fun, straightforward, quirky. But I think this is tying up a couple loose ends from that. And Justice League uh, quarterly came out every three months. You know, there's a place where they could do that because, you know, it's, it's an anthology book. So so you can, you know, and Peter Cannon had been involved with the Justice League Europe a few times. So it was a way to do that while they still had the license. I love Justice League quarterly and Green Lantern quarterly growing up because, number one, they were just big, thick books. And, like, you didn't get many comic books when you were, you know, you were a kid. You had to pick and stuff. And so, like, when it came time for me to choose which ones to steal, these would always be at the top of my list because, you know, it's a big, thick book. I'll get a lot of enjoyment out of that. And you would learn about characters that couldn't show up anywhere else. Like, here's Nort. Here's some Alan Scott stories in Green Lantern Quarterly. Justice League Quarterly, you're going to get some Global Guardians. You're going to get, like, these Charlton guys. You know, they didn't really have room for in the mainstream books. So, for me, these were both uh, big books. But, uh, but, you know, but, yeah, back to Thunderbolt. Again, uh, very similar story to Judo Master and Iron Fist. You know, probably that part of it hasn't aged well, but I think they do a pretty good job. I think Mike Collins does a good job of like rectifying some of that with this with his series. And then later on, when uh, Dynamite works with the character, I think they also do a good job, you know, kind of, you know, getting away from the Orientalist feel that it has. But I love Thunderbolt. Looks cool. You know, uh, like we talked about, you know, based on the Daredevil, the Golden Age Daredevil costume, great character, great talent. Pat Mauricia, and this is the last fact I have for you, he was a cop for the New York, for uh, the NYPD, and you weren't supposed to moonlight, so he signed his stuff, Pam, which is like his initials, because he was he was worried someone on the force would somehow, like, see it or know somehow, which is really funny. Can you just imagine, like, he walks into, like, that sergeant where, like, they have the, uh, you walk into the headquarters, it's behind that glass of that desk, and he's just reading Thunderbolt and, like, looks up <laughs> and, like, Pete, Pete. Great. I said Pat, but it's Pete Marissi. I'm getting confused. Pat Boyette, who created uh, Peace. Gotcha. Uh, the next character that I have listed here shows up for a very quick second in this issue and also in this universe that is our new judo master which i don't even think we have an actual name this is his first appearance in this issue created by paul kupperberg and mike cullens two total appearances for this character in the dc universe and that is this issue and a guy gardner warrior volume one number 29 is that the one with the bar I think it's a cameo from what I understand. Yeah. So just like, I think that's the one where guy opens warriors like the bar and like, there's just a bunch of guys in there, you know, it's a superhero <laughs> bar. This new judo master has come along and picked up the moniker of judo master. We also have a- Andreas, Andreas, 
havoc. Nothing out there on this guy. He is I a looked. bad guy from the uh, from the twelve issues of uh, Thunderbolt. The Baron Mordo of the Thunderbolt mythos, if you will. I got it. Yep. You know, like he thought he should be the one, and then he wasn't, so he just stole the scrolls anyway. And I believe he goes mad somehow, and now he's in Central Park doing bad guy stuff. Yeah, he is. All right. Well, there you go. That's kind of, and then we have our main characters here. We got Adam. We have. Um, excuse the Adam, not Captain the Adam. Adam, Captain Adam. My goodness, it has broke us, Derry. Um, <laughs> you just love Ray Palmer. It's okay. <laughs> Blue Beetle, Eve Eden, Nightshade, Thunderbolt, and Captain Adam uh, are also in this book. So here we go. I've got the synopsis ready to go. I don't want to start without giving you guys the opportunity. Is there anything I forgot or you guys need to talk about before I jump into that? All right, here we go. Um, the one thing I would say is honestly, the neatest part for me of this was the peacemaker reference where the general almost shoots somebody with his pistol. And yes. I was like, cause he says, he goes with my cult peacemaker, which is kind of a, uh, you know, it's, it's a, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, you know, peacemaker is one of the Charles guys. So I guess he sort of makes an appearance. I also looked at the gun itself because I'm a gun mark. And I was like, I hope that, you know, I was like, I bet they got it wrong. I bet they use a Colt 45, uh, the automatic, but no, it is correct. It is a revolver. It, they, it, it was the right gun. And it, <clears> you know, it just reminds me of the Steve Earl song, devil's right hand, where he's just like, you know, uh, First pistol I bought was a Colt 45. They called it a peacemaker, but I never knew why. <laughs> you know, I mean, so so it was good stuff. That was a good little part that, you know, it's kind of a meta thing to the story. And the end where they're all like, ah, I feel like we've all been together before. Ha <laughs> ha, no. That's a really nice way to, you know, yeah. wrap it up. Right. So we open this story outside of Tibetan monastery where a madman named Andres Havik has sprung free and now plots revenge on the hero Thunderbolt. Three days later, a dome in the middle of Central Park appears where a figure claims Vajra has returned, demanding Thunderbolt be brought there. Sergeant Steele notifies Captain Adam and also tells him Nightshade and Blue Beetle are going to lend a hand. It turns out Andreas Havoc is upset because he feels he is the reincarnation of a mystical being called Vajra, and Thunderbolt stole that from him. As all the team arrive, they make their way into the dome. After dealing with some summoned monsters, the team tries to track down Havoc. When they finally do, Havoc unleashes a spell that traps him in a horrific nightmare world. Outside the dome, a new Judo Master makes his way in, attacking Havoc and drawing his attention away from the rest of the team, allowing the others to free themselves. Nightshade is able to trap Havoc in one of her warps, defeating him. And at the end of the issue, the team reflects on how well they work together. There you go. Justice League Quarterly, Havoc Unleashed. Dean mentioned this, but I really, really like the scene at the end where they're all standing around and they're looking at each other and they're like, we seem to have some sort of, of connection. You, you know, this whole story hints at the fact that in some other life they were all friends or, or, you know, superheroes who may have run into each other, as opposed to in law, where it's like, oh no, you are immediately the only superhero team who can save the Justice League and, and thus the world. So I, I liked here with the more winking and nodding, more of a... It's kind of a Grant Morrison Animal Man moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, Not I as agree. serious as that, but like it kind of had that feel. Yeah, it's it's less uh, it's less from a place of no, this actually happened, and more of a hey, yeah, you know, if you read those great raw back together, if not, and you want to see more of us, please write to DC Comics. Um, <laughs> but I, I I agree with you guys. I I did not read Quarterly when it was coming out, but I I love going through these stories um, and seeing 
either things that were otherwise put into a drawer or uh, stories that never got a chance to to complete. I know if I had been reading Thunderbolt at the time and uh, this story had come out to kind of wrap things up, I would have really appreciated that. Uh, I know I still do today when, you know, last issues get published in, in annuals or whatever the equivalent of Marvel Comics presents is today. So um, I thought that was really cool. And actually, I read the other stories in this issue. And, and while I understand while we are not covering them, I, I do like the opportunity to do one-offs of people who wouldn't have been able to carry their own books. So I think I think Quarterly is a pretty, uh, pretty solid title. Dean, you talked about this being a perfectly acceptable comic book story. Yeah. Uh, you know, I jump into this thing, and I—I I, I mean, I feel the beat to that. Okay, hey, we got a threat. Gather the team. Let's go take care of business. Oh no, the evildoers got the upper hand. Ah, thank goodness, there's an element that he wasn't expecting, and boom, we're victorious. No, I thank mean, God, thank God, there were sewers for Thunderbolt Two to climb through. <laughs> I remember starting this out. I had to read it a couple times because I was a little lost. Uh, I didn't know who these characters were. I didn't know, you know, aside from what I had already read in law, but I didn't know the villain. The villain was definitely weird and whacked out. Thunderbolt, I didn't even know existed until I read this. That's kind of how new I was when I was reading this issue. Didn't know anything about Thunderbolt uh, being a superhero. You know, I, I was having a hard time following the villain. Like, dude was created a, you know, a dome and there's this big dude at, at the top of it hanging out saying, bring so-and-so to me. I'm the Vajra, blah, blah, blah. And it, you know, took me a couple of times to read it and finally figure out what was going on. But yeah, as far as like superhero stories go, yeah, this was just, it was there. It was perfectly acceptable. The guys got together and, and they took care of business. Dean, do you think, you know, seeing these Charlton heroes on the front cover, are, that's going to pop? Was that the selling point, obviously, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that's if if you weren't already buying Justice League quarterly, that was your best reason to buy this. I mean, unless you knew who was going to be in it. You know, I can't remember the other stories, um, but, you know, perhaps there were characters that you wanted to see more of. You know, like I remember in one issue, like Fire and O'Baron and Ice and Guy Gardner go on a double date. It's a fun story, you know, like you have that kind of thing, you know, in this uh, in this title. So, you know, I mean, I mean, I think that like the Mignolia cover is probably worth the price of admission alone, especially now. You're going to find this in like a buck bin. Yeah. You know, yeah. you're going to find, you know, I mean, so, you know, it might not have been worth 350 at the time, which I think is what the cover price was. Uh, but, you know, it's certainly worth a dollar now. Uh, I, I think you're right. It probably didn't come together very well. Like, I also knew that, like, when Thunderbolt's having his nightmare vision, you know, because Havoc is controlling him, there's a lady that he's talking to, and that lady was his girlfriend in the title. In his own title, but it turns out she was the bad. Like he was trying to fight this crime agency or this, you know, crime syndicate. And it turns out she was in charge of it. So like I knew that. So that makes it, you know, more yeah. important to me. But if you didn't, they didn't really get that across. I'm not saying it was perfect, but I am saying that, you know, uh, like I said, it's it, if you knew these characters and you, you know, you like, you know, Blue Beetle or Captain Adam or Thunderbolt. This was, or Nightshade, this was fine for you. I don't know if there was much if you liked Judo Master or Judo Master 2, but nobody likes Judo Master 2 because he didn't do anything else. Right. You have to know about him to dislike him. Nobody liked them that read them and nobody liked them that wrote them either because they obviously decided not to do it anymore. They just like, well, oh, that guy. I don't, I don't know what happens to their careers from here, but I think Mike Collins is, uh, 
has a lot of other things going on, you know. You know, I know he's. I need to start doing stuff closer to home because he's British, and I don't think Paul Coverberg's an editor much longer. I, you know, five okay. more years or something. So maybe that's part of it. Maybe they were like, "Well, that didn't work, so let's not bring it up anymore." Another thing is where you put him. You know, what are you, what are you going to do? Put him in another JLQ? This was only like tangentially related to the Justice League already. Yeah, and again, kind of like what you were saying is, we got to work our shit. We got to get our shit in. Right. Judo Master is the shit, you know, the cult peacemaker, the peacemaker is the shit. We got to get that shit into this issue in. somehow. Got to get it in. I, I've never read the Thunderbolt series, so I I did enjoy this story. I thought it brought you up to speed quite nicely if you hadn't read it. But, you know, ultimately it really is an issue of an ongoing book. Uh, but like I said, it, it kind of, it tees up law very nicely, even if it couldn't necessarily have anticipated that book. The other thing I'll say about uh, this one in particular is I really like the art. It's very much. Yeah, I was going to say that too. Mike Collins is a great penciler and he's very overlooked. It's very much of its time, but it, it's, it's it's dynamic the characters very much uh look like superheroes everyone's doing something they're constantly in motion uh so i i enjoyed it for that uh, i i thought everyone had pretty good design work too so so definitely my favorite art of what we read for tonight who's got also noticed that sarge steel talks like a person and not like you know <laughs> gumshoe spy caricature in this. <laughs> right. he's he's so over the top have you guys ever read frank miller's hard-boiled no, I've never read it. Yeah. So basically, the the gimmick there. I mean, we may want to cover it one day, but the gimmick there is, it's a person who's programmed to talk like that, and that's all I could think of with Starge Steel. I'm like, you're so over the top. Are we going to find out that you're a Cord <laughs> Industries? animatronic or, or something to that effect but again law, law never gets to that level of self-awareness he really does play it straight and gets to go off with the gorgeous wealthy incredibly horny redhead uh at the end of the book so let me ask jesse a question ask does sarge steel's like metal hand qualify him to be in cyber force <laughs> that answer is yes sir All right, that answer is yes sir. Hell yeah! Oh, he was actually the sergeant that Stryker was talking to in Mars Attacks Image. <laughs> yeah, that's why they got along, because I was like, I, why would they get along? He's like, that's why. He was just they, yeah, pals. they've got a history. I mean, like, look. They do the fucking, they do the fucking oh, predator dude. like handshake. Oh. Yes. Like, you know, <laughs> like, yes. With their metal hands. Yes, they do. Oh my gosh. All right. Derry, tell me what, what costume do you like better? Judo Master original recipe or judo master remix here i i really like the judo master costume in the quarterly book uh it dispenses with uh, the other characters basically just wearing the japanese flag which is fine but again he's not in any way japanese so that's kind of well, a also strange. seems like a poor idea since you decided to fight on the side of the allies right, right yeah there's a lot going on there like, None yeah, of no good. i'm with you i promise i'm <laughs> just wearing the flag of our enemy i swear to god it's it's also, very strange i do martial arts which you racists think that all japanese people do <laughs> so i I like the costume of Judo Master 2 because instead of having a fake ponytail, that appears to be his real hair. Uh, he's wearing what I imagine would be closer to what an actual martial artist would wear. Everything's flowy, so he can kick and stuff. Again, it looks like something. Judo Master 2 looks like someone who Shang-Chi would have had to fight uh, in the 80s. So again, I'm, I'm all about that. Uh, and again, I go back to what I said before about how when they adapted Judo Master for the Peacemaker show, they completely 
redid the costume from the ground yeah, up. Did. And and it's, it seems a similar approach was taken here where they were just like, we're keeping the name and we're keeping the general shtick. Everything else is getting a redo because, you know, it has not aged well. So I, I, I wish we had seen more of this character. I, I like the tiger rip relationship that we did get in law. I, I think that played out narratively and thematically very well, but yeah, th- this guy, uh, it's kind of sad that he never got to come back into the spotlight. Yeah. If one can well, call a short story, the justice league <laughs> quarterly, the so-called spotlight. Oh man. Hey, you, you never know, you know, characters, you just, if you land at the right moment, oh, yeah, yeah. you just, you never know. You never know. Honestly, when DC should have brought Judo Master back was probably like 1984 when Chuck Norris, there was a big ninja craze around then. Everybody, you know, I mean, we always, you know, were throwing ninja stars and shit at recess. I remember we had a rule for the playground. Like there was a rule that was like no fighting. There was a special rule by itself. No ninja kicking. Really? So that's how like ninja like shit was. The ninja turtles are about to start. So you know, but they might have should have taken a shot there because it might. But you know, you know, DC. By the time they decided to jump on a fat, it's been dead for a couple years. Yeah, in 1994, I think I think turtles were absolutely on their way out and. And and this would have been too early for Power Rangers. So Judo Master is right in the tiny nadir where there were no ninja characters, unfortunately. Right. Marvel superheroes, just throwing this out here. You know, we got Justice League Quarterly featuring a new character. Yeah. You know, and it jumps, you know, this is Judo Master. We're expecting him to jump off the page, become a, a very big extreme hit like Squirrel Girl from another quarterly sort of like, well, I guess... A, <laughs> From Marvel superheroes, was that a quarterly book? Every yeah, I believe it was a quarterly book. It was like you know the same here, you know, spring, summer, fall. That was ninety one. Yeah, I mean, to be fair though, a long time. So and and Squirrel Girl, Squirrel Girl, even I remember actually reading that around the time it came out. Squirrel Girl has a certain uh, Jason Aqua. You know what I mean? Like. (laughs) Like, there's something that's just adorable and fun about her that just does not apply to Judo Master 2. Although, who knows, in five years, somebody could be like, it's it's time, and they put a little spin on it, and before you know it, he's drop-kicking the dark side, and now he's <laughs> over. Well, to be fair, he <laughs> is sort of over right now. We have no idea what the name of that... We don't know what that Judo Master's name in Peacemaker the show is, right? We don't know that name. Uh, we we do not. It, it could be... The, you Listen... James Gunn has just got to say, well, there is some precedent for this. And it's in that Mike Mignola cover of the Justice League Quarterly. <laughs> and suddenly, if, if, if in the not too distant future, you have found this episode <laughs> because you were curious <laughs> about this version of Judo Master, we're sorry. We have very little to offer you. <laughs> yeah. But buy it now, kids, before it's hot. Yeah, seriously. Oh, you get know. in early. The action heroes, the Sentinels, the whatever you want to call them. It kind of, I kind of feel bad for them on a meta level because y- you're going to try to bring them back. You're going to try to relaunch them. You're going to try to integrate into something. But the first line out of anyone's mouth is going to be, aren't you the guy from Watchmen? Like you, you just, there's no chance. I don't, I don't care if Peacemaker runs for a hundred episodes. At the end of the day, it's still going to be like, wait, weren't you, weren't you the guy comedian was based on? So just 
part of this is funny because it's like, well, we're going to try to do superhero stories like we used to do. And it's like, yeah, but I need Peter Cannon threatening to blow up New York to to stave off something far worse. So I, I don't know. It's just kind of funny to try to watch them do this and just think in the back of my head. Yeah, but you got an HBO show that won a bunch of Emmy Awards that none of you were really in. So I don't know. I, I don't think know that they've done a good job with uh, Blue Beetle. As far as like, he seems very far away from Night Owl, especially when you factor in like the Jaime Reyes version. You know, I think that, they, that I think that that's one that was like less recognizable. But yeah, pretty much everybody else. You put the question in something, people are gonna be like, "Isn't that Rorschach?" Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. But but to your point, I, I always did find it interesting that Danny O'Neill and Steve Ditko couldn't be more different, regardless of the fact that they're both legends in a in, in the relatively small comic book industry. You know, Denny O'Neill was an ardent pacifist. He never appeared at a convention without his his peace sign uh, logo. And and Steve Ditko, of course, was an ardent objectivist who eschewed all of the publicity. And the fact that they both worked extensively on the question is so funny to me because, you know, and Dean mentioned this earlier, you go from basically a, a right-wing or hardline a superhero who has no problem murdering someone who he considers something bad, and you end up with this, like, zen Buddhist postmodern warrior monk, and it's all the same character. So again, the the question definitely continues to be uh, very interesting. And as we've said, all of that was thrown out for the JLU, where he's just like a weaponized conspiracy guy. So the 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 question I think is definitely the most interesting of all these guys. But again, when you have the co-creator of Spider-Man and Doctor Strange pouring his heart and soul into this, how could you get anything else? Well, great discussion all around about two stories that we didn't think you know lived up to what we wanted it to regardless (laughs) we had the discussion so with that being said let's go ahead and get into plugs here uh dean compton let's talk about the unspoken decade and where everybody can find you all right well we're on facebook doing 90s comic stuff still on twitter at unspoken decade uh we're starting an instagram at unspoken decade it's very bare bones at the moment but it it exists so you can go see it you know if you want and you know, it'll be both more of the same 90s comics pictures. Obviously, we're at the unspokendecade.com. You know, we've got some really good articles, uh, you know, there for you to read. And, you know, more coming out about once a month, thanks to Simbi fans' hard work. So, you know, check all that stuff out because it's the greatest goddamn thing you've ever seen. That's right, damn it. That's right. Listen, uh, ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to this episode on the Source Material Comics podcast feed, most likely. Uh, which is great because there's all sorts of other content out there on this feed you can listen to talking about comics. Specifically, Unspoken Issues is on here. Uh, Dean, Derry, and myself talking 90s comics. We got Chris Armstrong, other guests coming on to the show talking uh, 90s comics. Also, the Source Material Comics podcast where we just expand things out. It's like a book club for any comic in any era. Uh, and we have quite a few of those. We're over 300 e- episodes at this point. Actually, I, d- I got a spreadsheet. I looked at all of them. We got like 380 some episodes of source material out there. So most likely, thank you, thank you very much. You're going to be able to find something out there uh, and, in order to listen to us just discussing comics. That's what we love to do here. That's it. We're done. Thanks for joining us. Have a good one. Bye bye. Thanks for joining us. 
Unspoken Issues is part of the UnspokenDecade.com, the home for 90s comics, blogs, and podcasts. Unspoken Issues also has a Facebook group you can join if you are interested. Just search the Unspoken Issues podcast and request to join. All of this would not be possible without W2Mnet.com and the Rattelich and Broadcasting Network, so make sure to seek them out for more podcasts. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please feel free to share, and we look forward to entertaining you again soon.